Hello, welcome back to season two of the Faith in Development podcast brought to you by Tier Fund. I am Sabine Hunsi, your host for this conversation. In our first episode of 2022, we will focus on transfer masculinities, which is Tier Fund model for preventing sexual and gender-based violence. I will be speaking to my colleague Prabhudi Pan, who is in Sri Lanka and is the head of Asia region at Tier Fund. Prabhu previously led the Gender and Protection Unit and developed the Transfer Masculinity Model, which is now used in over 12 countries worldwide. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Good afternoon, Prabhu. How are you doing? Yes, Sabine, good afternoon to you. I'm all right. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for, for, for being here. I'm really excited to be in conversation with you today to discuss transfer masculinities, which is Tier Fund's model to preventing sexual and gender-based violence. Um, and just to maybe give a little bit of a context um, and background for our audience, we know that one in three women and girls will experience physical violence or sexual violence, or even both in their lifetime, and often also at the hand of men. And transferring masculinities is really a gender transformative approach for faith communities where we promote positive masculinities and gender equality as a way to prevent sexual and gender-based violence. And this whole approach uh, really uses uh, participatory activities. Uh, it's about uh, self-reflections and also scriptural reflections with faith communities to create and embrace new understandings of what gender is, uh, masculinities and gender equality, and all of that through the lens of faith. So welcome, Prabhu. <laughs> I'd love to ask you if you can tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to be involved in this work of promoting gender equality. Thanks, Sabine, and it's exciting to be here, and thanks for inviting me to be, be part of this conversation. Um, the, the journey for me has been since childhood. Uh, for me as a child, uh, I saw kind of domestic violence in my household, uh, you know, growing up in a, a war setting uh, and seeing violence outside me than seeing violence in the household. Um, it is kind of really difficult because I always had the sense of asking for justification or trying to make sense of things that happen around me. And I think some things doesn't make sense and some things you just kind of think this is the way it's supposed to be. And I, I would always intervene when, whenever my father would, you know, uh, try to physically assault or hit my mom. Uh, and from a young age, I made a decision that I will not be a father or a man or a husband like my fa father. At that time, it sounded like a noble thing. And I think, you know, 10 years ago, you would ask me and I'm like, that's a great thing. As I've grown older, I've realized that that doesn't make me a good person and a good man. You know, it's me comparing myself to the possibly the worst out there, uh, you know, and saying I'm a good person. And over the years, my personal journey has been in trying to explore what that alternative could look like. What does an ideal, you know, man, a human being could look like that's not just uh, decided on based on the use of violence, but really the, the not use of violence is an outcome of all the internal, uh, you know, beliefs and ideologies and, and knowledge and attitudes and all of that that I want to possess and, you know, be on that journey. So for me, 
that was a starting point, uh, trying to really make sense of what was happening around me and then and trying to be on that journey. Uh, sometimes, I guess, for you know, people calling me out and trying to kind of understand what that meant. You know, you have all the good intentions and uh, really wanting to make a contribution uh, to at that starting again starting point being so that people like my mom and my sister and other women, you know, trying to do something for somebody else, and then along the way that realizing there's a lot that I need to do for myself so that I could be a better person and that could change things around me. Uh, as as a man specifically, right? Um, so when we uh, in 2013, um, you know, I had just been working with another international organization looking at men and why men use violence. I was part of a country study and part of a you know multi-country study across Asia and the Pacific. I think that was the kind of eye-opening thing for me. I had this personal experience then in in a work setting because I had been working on young people, gender, HIV, etc. for you know some time now. And then thinking about it was an aha moment, like, you know, of course we need to work with men and boys at that time, because at that time we realized that, you know, it, we are causing most of the pain and most of the violence. And, you know, so you can't address gender-based violence when significantly disproportionately it's, you know, men who use violence against women and girls. It's a male violence issue. So it made a lot of sense, but at that time I didn't know how. There was a lot of different programs that looked at promoting different entry points, whether it's on fatherhood or caregiving roles and, you know, household chores and things like that, which particularly didn't resonate with me because I knew my father was a good cook and, you know, he cared, didn't improve the way or didn't change the way he looked at my mom or, you know, uh, women around him. So that was my starting point. I was invited to work with Fund uh, in 2013 to, because back then I think you, you remember 2011, we started our sexual violence response and uh, as all our responses through the res- listening exercises with survivors, uh, they were saying, what about men? Why are you talking to us? And then in the spirit of exploring what that could look like for Tier Fund, looking at men, masculinities and faith, I was asked to do a series of formative studies and try and see, is there something that Tier Fund can offer back to the communities, uh, the work that we work with? So that was the beginning, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, thank you. Thank you for, for, for our audience. Uh, Prabhu is actually based in Sri Lanka. Uh, he is, of course, still um, uh, part of TIA Fund, uh, but is heading the Asia region, but has previously been part of the gender and protection unit. He led that unit for some time as he was also uh, leading on this transforming masculinity work. So as I guess as the architect of this uh, approach of transforming masculinities, I mean, I think you've touched a bit on that. What was really the vision uh, behind it? Yeah, I mean, Sabine, it was quite accidental for me in many ways. Like, I think I was on my personal journey and trying to, at that time, you're trying to do something for your fund. And what really happened was something happened for me and something happened for the men and women that I was part of in, in conversation with, which I really didn't anticipate. So as part of the formative research, formative research is like, you know, really listening to the communities that you want to work with. And it's purposeful. Like we wanted to, you know, use that information to design an intervention. So that's what usually we, uh, you know, call it formative research. So I was doing uh, focus group discussions with men and women, and then also interviewing uh, faith leaders, mostly pastors and community leaders, et cetera. You know, and in one community, you know, this person tells me, Prabhu, how can I be something I have never seen? I have never seen another man, my father, be like this. So who is this? What 
what is this alternative that you're talking about? And I realized how important that it was to have create visibility, to role model, to give something for men to aspire towards and young boys to aspire towards. And I think that was really an uh, important moment for me. But I think the thing that really kind of anchored this whole transfer masculinity thing for me is that I realized at the end of these uh, discussions, I might never come back because I was, you know, asked to come and do this, you know, study for Tier Fund and, you know, and I didn't know what was going to happen next. But I thought like I'll finish the, you know, part of the research and then I would talk to these men one-on-one -on -one and say, uh, really try to appeal because it's being on a journey, right? I knew that part, like it is really appealing to other men and women to say, this is the journey, this is possible. And I did share about my life and things like that. And after six months or so, I got invited to go back as part of the wider SGPV kind of a review. I remember one of these pastors getting up in front of his congregations and saying, after Prabhu's seminar, you know, that is that little bit after the research, he said, I realized I've been raping my wife for 20 years because I've never asked her for consent. And I realized the power, transformational power of using reflection, scriptures, and it was just the 30 minutes, you know, not to say that he has been transformed. I think it's just that moment where you become aware of something that you didn't know that you were doing something wrong. At that moment, I knew the vision is then to accompany men and women, not only men, men and women, on a journey that we looks at, you know, what it means to be that, looks at gender norms, gender roles, but with the hope of promoting equality. I think most often we focus on challenging what is harmful, which is really important, but what is the alternative? Mm. We needed to give something else. So for me, it was then to journey with men and women, share my journey, allow them to share their journeys in a way that could transform the kind of people, but at the core of it, challenging inequality on this journey. So that was kind of my vision. Mm, thank you. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit uh, more about the whole process in terms of, you know, are there some, some key principles to these transforming masculinities? And also what are some of the things that are explored during this whole process? Yeah, so for, for me, I think, you know, it, it is really around, as I was designing, I realized that obviously a, a one-day workshop, a three-day workshop, or a training period, like even a one-year thing, wouldn't change people's lives because we've been socialized in a way all our lives. Everywhere we go, we are told either this is the way you have to be as a man or a woman or, you know, however you choose to identify yourself. And those messages are consistent and constant and in every space. So for us, for me, I knew that at that moment, I needed to counter this message in a way as well, but also really exploring ways that we can reinforce positive norms and messages. So I knew at the beginning, the religious leaders were really important. Our pastors were really important, not only to um, use them as, you know, using sermons, et cetera, but for them to be on a, a journey themselves, because if they believed in equality, then their messages will reflect that. Their interpretation of the scriptures, the lens, the preaching, the testimonies, all of that will reflect that. For me, that was really important because a critical component of that is working alongside religious leaders for them to be on that journey then to train other men and women in the local group. I knew from the beginning that it needed to be a conversation with both men and women, mm. creating spaces specifically for men and women separately and also together so that it is safe enough for us to talk to men and men are able to share their vulnerabilities, be called out, be held accountable, et cetera. Mm. And the same for women to be affirmed and empowered. You know, I, I don't use the same tone with men and women both because 
uh, most often you have interventions that end up making you know women or those who are already surviving violence you know feel guilty for what's happened to them so the last thing i wanted to see is that women now saying i'm sorry for you know me experiencing violence so really careful about the wording is around empowering the scriptures that we chose etc as well so that dialogue is really important because what it meant for me is that this could begin to start a journey where this become day-to-day part of our lives this dialogues these conversations have to happen in every space outside and beyond our project timelines and our you know funding cycles that was a vision so that is really critical to the transfer messages intervention the faith leaders a facilitated dialogue but also the the dialogue process itself that allows for people to listen together come together critically reflect as a group hold each other accountable but also self-reflect practice come back the next week you know continue on that journey because I think that that sharedness, shared journey is really, really key. So that's the process of in. But on the other hand, we really want to anchor the discussions around scriptures. We mm-hmm. looked at uh, scriptures that really looked, uh, people kept repeating through the formative research that I referred to earlier. So which was around creation, you know, so going back to Genesis 1, 26, 28, how we were created in the image of the triune God, and then the fall and then, you know, resurrection, uh, Jesus Christ, you know, uh, and salvation and resurrection, etc. But we also looked at other scriptures that people constantly quote, like, you know, a woman, you shall submit your husband and etc. Really trying to re-understand what is being said in that context and what it meant for us. So we use that. And then that is really critical part of that. I think you can't take uh, reflections from scriptures out of the TM and it would, you know, would be TM in that, uh, transfer masculinity in that space. And power. We are not in the business of teaching people how to use their power well. This is really around challenging unequal power and status and working towards dismantling that unequal power and state system. So really about how do we talk about power, how we you know, engage with each other, the dynamics around that, and you know, the power dynamics in gender, et cetera, et cetera. So that is really critical to the transfer masculinity process. The other thing is, the aspiration, Jesus as the role model for Christians who you work with. I think that's a really key thing where we want to kind of unpack the life of Jesus and the characteristics of Jesus uh, in a way that people can relate to as the ultimate role model for us. So I think these are some of the critical uh, reflections and critical part of the process of transfer masculinities. Mm, thank you so much, Prabhu. As you were speaking, I was uh, reflecting myself on some of the, the, the workshops that I've been part of um, around transfer masculinities. And as you do certain activities, especially power, you know, people realize they, they don't understand the power that they have and what that could actually do and how the imbalance of power can actually lead to, to violence. I wonder if you might maybe be able to speak more um, into that and what that means for, especially for women, when they're part of that conversation around uh, power, you know, have you had any, any, have you seen anything and how, how does that unfold? Do we see resistance for men? Um, how, how, is, how does that work out? Yeah, and I think the, the interesting thing, Sabine, is that whenever we, we were designing, uh, and I was, you know, kind of putting together the journey, as we say, or the trajectory of the workshops or the discussion, I wanted to make sure that we start with things that people can relate to. Mm. So from the statistics that we use, the stories that we use are all from what the participants themselves bring. So it's not like, hey, these guys come from somewhere around the world or Sri Lanka, or they most often think I come from the UK because I'm with Tier Fund. People look at ways to other you and say, this is not part of our culture. 
this gender equality is not enough for us. So, and this gender-based violence is, you know, try to downplay play or minimize the experiences. So when we, we start the workshop or a conversation, it always starts with what is going on in your community? Can you share something and unpack that? We visualize that. So what I was trying to say is when we get to power, it's usually day two. And we've already spoken about how these experiences, because nobody there would say a woman should be beaten or this, you know, rape or gang rape or, you know, whatever form of violence, very physical and, you know, brutal. They don't justify that in a group setting. Mm-hmm. But when you start going into emotional violence, marital rape and other things, then it becomes that the caveats start coming. Mm-hmm. But we try to take them on a journey to make them understand violence, all violence is violence and unacceptable and how they are linked and rooted in unequal power. Mm-hmm. So by the time we get to that, you know, they've already been through this con- conversation. They've already been able to relate to things that happened to them and happened to people around them. And then we are at the point where we want to talk solutions. We want to understand why is this happening? People want to know why is this happening? And we've made that journey to power. When we say gender inequality, we are talking about unequal power, unequal opportunities, unequal autonomy, mobility, you know, rights, access, all of that, the, you know, combination of all that, you know, and then we can't address that constantly by trying to maintain status quo while holding on to one, holding on to power over the other. So we haven't had significant resistance because we use the, uh, the activity that we use for, you know, discussing power is quite interactive mm-hmm. and very visible. Like, so people experience that, you know, the moment they lose power in that uh, skit or, you know, uh, interactive activity, you know how it feels not to have a voice, not to have a say, not to be able to control what you do or what you ask to do. And I think people are able to relate to that in a way. So most often, I would say, people have come away thinking, oh my God, this is how we've used people. We've Mm -hmm. used women or other people who are in our society who have been perceived to have lower status or or who are vulnerable or discriminated as things and objects because as they don't have autonomy or a voice. Mm -hmm. So I haven't had massive resistance in Mm -hmm. that space, Sabine. I only think it's because we didn't start talking about power to begin with. Mm-hmm. We started somewhere else where people were emoting and understanding and relating to experiences, you know, that they, it's from their local context and uh, close to their heart in many ways. So, yes. Mm. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, so you've talked a bit about the kind of the inception phase, inception of, of transfer masculinities. Um, I'd love to hear some of your reflections around where you, where you see the work now, where it has got to, any sort of impact it is having. Yeah, I mean, it's been really exciting. I think the most important thing for me is that looking back and saying, oh, you know, this is where I was and this is where I am. And I always think any kind of work that you do has like a two-way formula where it needs to change people's lives, but also needs to change you. If one of the things is not happening, then the formula is broken, you know. Mm. So for me, I think I I feel like I'm a better human being, a better father, a better husband, a better man in that way. And I want to continue to be on that. What has been really exciting to see is other men and women share that sentiment, share that, share that feeling across the world. And, you know, we are implementing this in one around 10 countries at the moment. The toolkits are in, you know, from Russian to Portuguese to Burmese to English, French and Spanish. And, you know, so it's really exciting to see that it, this resonates, this experience of mine, this experiences of us as men and women starting in, you know, in various communities, it resonates with different uh, parts of the world as different men and women. And that's 
having an impact on their lives. And we've seen this being taken to scale in uh, Nepal, in, you know, in Nigeria, we know that it's gone beyond just the transfer masculinity and talking about interpersonal violence, intimate partner violence to more community violence as well, working with mixed religious groups as well. And then we've seen in places like Central Asian states where it's really exploring what this could mean like for them. So I think that's really exciting to see that, that it's more a move, the kind of the movement that I was hoping that it would become. It will go beyond just being an intervention. It'll mm. become a movement. It'll be in our day-to-day -day conversation. So uh, thousands of men and women have gone through the process. Uh, you know, hundreds of pastors have been trained, hundreds of uh, gender champions been trained across the 10 to 12 countries. And we've seen, you know, significant reduction of violence in most of the places that we were working in. And we know that in DRC, uh, in the Eastern DRC, in Ituri province, you know, the, the work that we've been doing in the in the 15 villages, we've seen like 60% reduction of intimate partner violence. Mm -hmm. And the recent study, you know, from Nigeria that shows like significant reduction of intimate partner violence, but also improvement in social cohesion and mm -hmm. trust among you know, multiple communities. So I think it's really exciting to see those stories and numbers. But I think the most important thing has always been Sabine, when you meet somebody and talk to and they say, oh my God, this changed my life. My mm -hmm. husband was like this, or I was like this. And I think there's nothing that beats that when you connect to that story, because you can recognize that in you. And you're mm -hmm. also grateful to be somehow being part of that story. And when I started it, obviously, I was the only one who was training. And, you know, there were a couple, you know, from our team, who was involved and we had Reverend Desmond to see that grow. I think now the vision is to how do we have more men and women who can lead these trainings, mm. who are in connection with one another, who are sharing this journey, but also leading other men and women across the world. And in one way to find myself decentering from that self process itself. So for me, I think it's been really stepping out of this and seeing other people who resonate with this and can make it their version of it, things that matter to them in a way that matters to them and tell these stories and tell the work with people in a way that they can relate to and mm. can accompany people in their community. So I think that's kind of where I want to see this going. Mm. And it's really exciting to see the impact that it's having around, you know, uh, people's lives and around the world. Yeah. Yeah. So as, as you were speaking, I, um, I remember being uh, actually in chat with Wezo, uh, so Wezo Lele, who is the Transfer Masculinity Advisor, uh, who is part of the Gender and Protection Unit. Uh, we were in chat and uh, specifically working around the issue of uh, female genital mutilation or cutting. And uh, he was facilitating uh, a workshop with pastors and uh, taking them through the transfer masculinity uh, approach. And, uh, and, and I guess one of the things that you, you do during the, during the whole process is to also, you know, that part about self-reflection. There was an exercise that was given to the participant to go home and ask their families or their spouse, what are some of the things that they do? you know, that people are not happy with. And, uh, and I remember uh, the next day when people came back and, uh, and basically a pastor stood up and said, I always thought that um, I am the, you know, the best husband. I always thought that I bring in my wife in the, the decision making in our home. I always thought that, that I am a good man. But I went to my wife, I asked her that question. And firstly, she was very surprised that I asked the question. And I was very surprised that she was surprised because I thought, you know, I'm very welcoming. I can, uh, you know, I, I, I listened to her, but she was very surprised that I asked her that question because she said that he never listens to her. He never listens to her. He makes all the decisions about 
what they eat, what they buy, what she needs to wear, decisions around the education of children. And he came back and, and he said, I was so surprised by that because I thought I, I, I was not doing those things. So that kind of self-reflection yeah. uh, is really important. And, and yes, and we, we've seen some of that really around the world. And, and, and I wonder if you, if you have like particular stories that also come to mind in uh, some specific countries, any, any, any of those stories that you yeah, remember? I mean- I think the some of this, you know, that exercise the next day is always the most interesting thing for me because a as a trainer, I also do the same, and I do ask my wife in you know, a number of times that I do the training, I do ask my, you know, Shiro, is there something else? And my earliest kind of memories of this man called Pasabura, the next day he was trying to explain to the group, he was in tears and he said, my wife asked me why are you asking me this now? Mm. He said, ask your trainer to kick you. You, 14 years we've been married and not a single day have you ever asked me why now mm. and he was just broken he said how much have I missed out from this how much you know have I missed out from this and and I remember not only those who respond to this question those who don't ask and I think it's paying attention to those things as well mm. like men come and say I didn't ask she was having a headache and all the excuses mm-hmm. that they would bring and I remember asking this imam why and he said Prabhu, I didn't want to ask because he said, I'm unemployed. I don't have an income. Mm. And if she, if I ask her, she will say, you never look after me. I, you never buy me clothes. Why, why do I have to, you know, give you answers to this? And so there's this other burden that you carry. And I realized how sad it is because mm. the whole idea of companionship and being in relationship with one another is to be able to share those burdens, yeah. uh, you know, and being in that and I also remember the, meeting another pastor, you know, from Central Asian States. And he said, Prabhu, I cursed the day I met you. He said, I came into this workshop. Everything in my life was clear. Work, you know, I knew what men were supposed to do, women were supposed to do. I knew the place of women in society. Now I'm conflicted. I'm grappling with so much. I need to change. But I wish I never met you. You know, I think these are things like you hear in a, in a way that it makes you feel like this is what you really want. It's not like people all of a sudden within three days get transformed. It's people to be on that journey, start to you know, question themselves, question things around them. Thank you, thank you. And you, so you, you've been talking about imams a lot. So I wonder um, uh, if you can talk a little bit about some of the interfaith work that we have done. Yeah, so I mean, I, you know, I feel like how we resolve conflict is gendered in many ways uh, and how people take up violence and, you know, community, et cetera, is gendered. So if you look at me as a man, uh, there's a certain internalization of, you know, what it means to be a, a masculine. And, and there's a sense of defending honor, whether it's the family or community. So most often you see young people being mobilized into communal violence and fighting and defending honor and, and et cetera. So I think, you know, it, you feel like it's, it's, the, it's expected from me. Mm-hmm. If somebody attacks my house, I will defend them. That's what I am, you know, and then the same with the community. So I think one thing, but also like, I think the use of violence, because when you have an imbalanced power or you don't know how to n- communicate dialogue or uh, negotiate, uh, then you start to use violence as a way of, you know, kind of uh, compensating for that. So we see this happening in, you know, many communities across, you know, almost all the communities that we work in, whether whatever irrespective of their religious affiliations, et cetera. So our work in some kind, you know, in DRC and Nigeria have been involved working with both Christians and Muslims. We've been able to work with our uh, partners who are 
uh, working with Muslim communities and Muslim uh, religious leaders to mirror the re reflections from the Quran and the Hadith for mm -hmm. their local communities in many ways. And I remember being, you know, in, in this mosque and this wife, you know, who says, my husband will not stop telling I love you to me ever, you know, now. and she's so, she's like dreaming. And for me, at that moment, I realized this change may seem so insignificant for me, but mm -hmm. for her, it was pro profound, you know, mm -hmm. and I acknowledging that change of all sizes do matter, not to me, but those who are benefiting from that change. So yes, we work with imams. We take them through the same process. Uh, we adapt the process to be culturally sensitive in a way that allows for us to work with where we are. It's also led by other Islamic leaders. So it's not us who are leading it, but there is an Islamic version of the transfer masculinities that you know, uses and is really uh, uh, adapted to work with the Islamic community. And we do work with mixed religious communities as well in Nepal, in other parts of the world where do we have you know, mixed religious communities, working with community leaders, et cetera. The idea is that I think there's so many ways that we can elevate the things that honor men and women and equality. And we don't need to throw out all of our culture mm. in order to say we want to promote gender equality. I think what we really need to do is how do we redeem parts of our culture that is embedded in inequality? How do we challenge those? How do we re-understand, you know, how do we, uh, you know, uh, unpack those so that we can actually, uh, you know, enjoy the fullness of our culture without discriminating men and women, discriminating or, you know, so I think that's what we really want to do. It's not about, you know, I mm. think sometimes people feel very defensive because you come in and say your culture is bad. Mm. And, and as a minority, the last thing I want is somebody to come and tell me your culture is bad because I'm trying to preserve it. Mm -hmm. You know, what I really want to understand is that parts of my culture that, you know, is violent towards, you know, people, men and women, violence oppressive towards women i want that to be you know challenged so that we can really continue to enjoy the good things that, that makes me who i am and you know and i think that's kind of the work that we do when we work with other religious communities or other you know um, contexts mm. how, how have you dealt let's say with pushback around this work um either be in terms of um language so i can give you um, an example i remember in some of the countries where we were, we've been working and trying to adapt transfer masculinities and saying transfer masculinity itself, changing and translating that locally meant something else, right? Some people will say, okay, is that gender reassignment? What does that mean? So um, yeah, what are some of the pushback that you have faced and you know, how did you begin to address these challenges? I think it's really in, in the conversation itself, when people are in the room, there's always, very little the resistance that's come where people are saying, I don't want to change. Mm. It's mostly people trying to process it, you know, you know, kind of un separate themselves from the, you know, things that they think aren't good. And that's usually okay. That's a part of the journey, right? Mm. Uh, I think the challenges have always been most often me talking to people who feel like I can't relate to them because they're of a different uh, nationality and me not being able to communicate in that language and then translating into languages, the toolkits itself, like you were explaining, that already are sensitive you know, in, in the ways that we uh, you know, uh, directly translate in order to, so doing that in a sensitive way, so we do not lose the meaning of them. So we really want to talk about the equality of you know, both men and women in this conversation. And so in some contexts where gender has become a sensitive word because of the debate around sexual orientation and gender identities, Mm -hmm. And we really wanted to make sure that 
we can speak about this in a way that is meaningful for what we're trying to do at that point and having space to talk about other things like sexual orientation and identities if people are interested in so that we don't feel massive resistance from groups of people who are not really want ready to talk about you know the other conversation mm. i think the moment you say gender then people think you're talking about sexual orientation or gender identities mm. i think the flip side of that is then we only talking about this from a binary men and women you know so mm. being limited to really talking about men and women in this context where we know there are other gender identities who experience gender based violence as well mm. uh, you know so i think the challenge is being that you know being sensitive about the work that we do in the ways that we translate because they recognizing their existing histories and not adding fuel to that where we want is a space to start a dialogue and a conversation so i think that's really important i think that's always usually overcome by working with the local communities understanding like for example in nigeria the transfer masculinity adaptation was gender based violence plus focusing on family planning uptake and the religious leader said don't use family planning because people associate with negativity they said use birth spacing so the solutions don't need come from me absolutely it's really around co creating what is meaningful for people that we are trying to serve and journey with without losing their sense of it mm-hmm. so we don't want to uh, assimilate or dilute the meaning it is about gender equality it's about promoting you know uh, gender equality it's about challenging male violence it's about challenging gender you know inequality etc so i think working around that sometimes could be challenging the second thing is obviously scaling up is difficult when we expect so much from the trainers we want them to be able to offer themselves their experiences you know their vulnerabilities in a way because that's when it's work people reciprocate mm-hmm. you can't multiply that saying you know we want to train 1000 people who are willing to uh, be spoken into be called out be held accountable that's really challenging so what it means is we are limited with the number of people who can actually do trainings and so we really are you know because we need to build a movement so we initially traditionally thought like a tot or trainer of trainer processes where you think you take the approach you train somebody and everything is going to be okay it doesn't actually work that way because we really need to be able to journey with people and create a movement of people who are able to do this so uh, i think that's those are kind of some of the challenges um, as well thank you so much prabhu it's been pleasure to be in conversation with you it's good to 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 have this conversation thank you so much thank you sabin thanks so much for having me Thank you for listening. I hope you have been inspired by what Prabhu shared. Our next episode will focus on social norms and gender transformation. My colleague Francesca Quirk and Merita Mari will be exploring the role of norms in our gender work. I hope you can join us again. In the meantime, if you want to find out more about our work or catch up on previous episodes of the Faith in Development podcast, please visit learn.org. tfund.org